Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. In this episode, I speak to Bruce Friedrich, who's the executive director and co-founder of the Good Food Institute, also known as GFI. It's a nonprofit that promotes plant-based alternatives to meat, dairy and eggs, as well as those using cellular agriculture to produce replicas of these animal-based products at the cellular level, but in fermentation tanks and other cultivation facilities without any animal involvement. GFI engages scientists, policymakers, and entrepreneurs to advance the creation and adoption of these food products by producing research and a range of resources to help innovators and the industry at large come to grips with this emerging food sector. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone working in this area who doesn't know who they are, which is pretty impressive considering they were only founded in 2016. I've known Bruce since the start, and this conversation is us touching base to talk about the epic growth that GFI has seen for the organisation itself and for the alt-protein sector at large. And it's also me picking up on a few things that I asked him back in a 2016 interview on agfundernews.com, the link to which is in the show notes. Bruce is an awesome interview, and I will just add that I did kind of jump this on him. He thought we were scheduled literally just to have a catch up, and I thought I'd grab the opportunity with having him on the phone to record it. So he very graciously allowed me to record our conversation, and this is it. It has been a while, and I am doing extraordinarily well thank you um yeah i am doing extraordinarily well i just uh got back from um two weeks visiting our eu team um our hong kong team some really impressive volunteers in korea uh who have been a part of the gfi community from the very beginning um popped up to china and um some folks who we work with in china arranged um, it was a day trip to Beijing, um, and we met with one of GFI's grantees. We met with a very impressive startup. Uh, we met with the fellow who founded um, an organization called the China Plant-Based Foods Alliance. Um, and then we met with uh, a nonprofit there that does uh, some really interesting and impressive meat reduction work. So um, it was really just a, an incredibly inspirational, I mean, that was an inspirational day, but the whole trip was just um, a very powerful way to spend two weeks. Absolutely. So that, that's quite a far cry from um, when you launched in February 2016. I was looking back at our first uh, big interview, which was the end of 2016, and you had eight staff members, I think, or maybe 10. But where are you now? How big is the organization today? Um, well, we have 67 full-time staff in the U.S., um, and then we have 20 full-time staff spread across our affiliates in, in India, Israel, Brazil, uh, Asia Pacific, and Europe. Um, and our plans for 20, early 2020 um, are to double our overseas staff. Um, and I think we're adding half a dozen people in the U.S., uh, but adding um, a bit more than 20 people. Um, across our across our overseas affiliates. Okay, so to say that's exponential growth is an understatement. Then, <laughs> well, it's uh, it's yeah, no, it's uh, we've been we've been heartened uh, by the degree of support that we have found among philanthropists um, who are interested in in global health and climate change and animal protection and recognize the harms of uh, the way that we are producing meat now and recognize. 
the value of producing meat by biomimicking it from plants or, or growing meat directly from cells like this is really probably the only way uh, we turn back the tide um, and decrease industrial meat production and consumption. Uh, people are not going to eat less meat, uh, but they will eat meat uh, if it gives them everything they like about meat and it's produced from plants or, or grown directly from cells. So it's, it's a theory of change that's resonated with people. What would you say have been some of the biggest changes then in the industry since you started nearly four years ago? You know, I mean, what would you say have been some of your, your biggest successes? Um, well, I mean, I think the biggest changes and biggest successes, I mean, um, it, it's impossible to say what part we played in, in some of the more exciting developments. Like they're certainly in line with the things that we were working to make happen. Um, but things like uh, the big meat companies launching their own plant-based lines is something that we're extraordinarily enthusiastic about. We think that uh, changes the game in a really significant way, and it's, it's certainly something we were um, encouraging. Would they have done it without us? It's, it's really just tough to know. Um, government funding is definitely something that would not have happened if not for us, so the money we have been able to secure uh, for plant-based uh, and cultivated meat R&D um, in various countries around the world is extraordinarily exciting. Um, we've had some really nice policy successes uh, that we were the only ones working on, so um, we're obviously the but-for cause of those. Um, we've been responsible for a fair number of startups that, you know, they're very early, so uh, the impact remains to be seen, but um, we're very enthusiastic about um, some of these plant-based um, and cultivated meat and seafood startups that we've been uh, a big part of, of getting going. And then just changing the way that the climate um, and global health communities think about these issues. Um, I think there has been a bit of an allergy um, oftentimes among especially NGOs in the climate and global health space to the idea of suggesting meat reduction, um, and one can understand why. It's just not something that consumers want to hear. Uh, but this more global solution, instead of meat uh, reduction or you know adopting a vegetarian or a vegan diet or whatever, uh, talking about a global solution, making meat in a better way. Um, I mean, that meets with enthusiasm across the NGO community. It meets with enthusiasm um, among think tanks, uh, and it meets with enthusiasm in a very bipartisan way. I was really proud and excited last year at our conference to have both the Charles Koch Institute um, sponsoring the conference and the Rockefeller Foundation sponsoring the conference, and uh, very excited to have allies in, con in Congress uh, from both sides of the aisle, because using uh, markets and technology uh, to change um, how meat is made is something that just really meets with enthusiasm. And, you know, it's, uh, it's fun to, for example, be on a panel with Tyson Foods, and uh, the Tyson person is saying we're all about consumer choice. And uh, I, on behalf of GFI, am saying we're all about consumer choice. Um, our goal is not to change the way that people think about food. Our goal is not to change um, anybody's sort of metrics for food choices. Our, our goal is to change the food so that uh, the plant-based and the cultivated alternatives um, and these things have significantly lower external costs, no need for antibiotics, a fraction of the climate impact is just two examples, um, so that consumers choose them because they are the most delicious uh, and most affordable alternative. And just that way of looking at the world uh, is really on the global map in a way that I'm proud 
um, about how much GFI has, has contributed to that. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, just thinking a bit about some of the challenges that you face, but also the industry faces, and also, um, you know, about that consumer choice and, and making sure consumers always have the information that they need to make these choices. Impossible Foods has obviously always been um, very open about the fact that they use genetic technology and GMO soy. Um, thinking about the cultivated meat side, you know, how have you been communicating what that is to consumers and how is that going? Well, we're not, uh, I mean, GFI is pretty laser focused um, on the supply side of the equation um, and by being laser focused on the supply side of the equation. So um, our, our communication focus is to policymakers, to corporations, to scientists. Um, those are sort of the three predominant areas where we communicate. And obviously, if we're um, in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or something, that's going to communicate with a much broader um, swath of people, not just the, the folks who are sort of our target audience. But our, our theory on cultivated meat is that the numbers are already extraordinarily good. Um, if you look at the polls, I mean, and, and this is true even when it's called in vitro meat or lab-grown meat, you still see 30 to 70 percent of people um, saying that they are enthusiastic about consuming it. And you compare that to the market right now for plant-based meat, um, which is about one half of one percent of the meat market is plant-based. So you're literally talking about our worst case scenario for a product that doesn't even exist yet, um, has 60 times as many uh, people saying that they're enthusiastic about eating it uh, proportionately to how much plant-based meat is being eaten um, as compared to animal-based meat. I think that was, a, <laughs> that was not an eloquent way of framing that. Uh, but the, 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 the point though, is that despite the fact that the product doesn't even exist yet, there is a, you know, if 30% of people are if 30%, which is the sort of worst case scenario, that's a $60 billion per year market um, in the United States, um, a $60 billion per year market um, before the product exists. And we don't think we don't think Madison Avenue is going to have any trouble selling this product uh, once it exists, because you're talking about something um, that is very unlikely to have food contamination, which is something that kills thousands of people and sickens tens of millions um, every single year, has a fraction of the various environmental um, harms, doesn't require antibiotics, doesn't require um, farms and slaughterhouses. Like once you have these two products um, and they're side by side, um, lots of people will pay a premium for the cultivated meat. Uh, but because cultivated meat is so much more efficient as it scales up and the CapEx costs are incorporated uh, into the cost of the product, you know, which is going to take, you know, obviously a few more years. Uh, but once that happens and you have the two products that cost the same or the cultivated meat even costs a little bit less, um, this is going to be a very, very easy product uh, to pitch to consumers. Let's talk about cost. And when we spoke back in 2016, you were a bit frustrated that people kept quoting that um, $300,000 cost of the first cultivated <laughs> burger. And I always think of you because I still see it kind of quoted today. Um, you know, what, is the, what, what is the cost today? Let's try and spread what the actual realistic cost is around today. And where do you think it'll end up soon? I mean, it's going to vary company by company, right? So, I mean, there are now more than 30 uh, cultivated meat companies. I mean, when we spoke, there were eight, um, and at least a few of them had not raised any money yet. 
Um, now there are at least 30, um, I think all of which have raised money, um, some of which have raised more than $10 million. Um, so it's still pretty early days for this industry. Um, but um, I mean, I've, I've seen promising numbers um, from the companies themselves about having the cost down by multiple orders of magnitude from you know the 2015 burger. And, and again, that 2015 burger, there was not a single company uh, existing anywhere in the world when that burger was made. Um, and now there are now there are more than 30. And you think about the first iPhone, it was, you know, billions of dollars in R&D went into the first iPhone. And, and obviously the cost came down um, exponentially from there. We're going to see the same thing happen with cultivated meat. And multiple, multiple companies have now said they expect to have products in the shelves on shelves in a few years. Um, I think most people are predicting something like 10 years for cost competitiveness. Where do you think it is today? About $50, $50 a burger, $100? What's a kind of ballpark? Oh, must have some insight there. It, the the numbers that you see from the various companies um, are just really all over the map. I mean, obviously, those numbers are going to be proprietary on a company by company basis, um, and it's going to depend a lot on what the technology looks like on a company by company basis. I mean, no nobody's at a place at which they can scale up um, and supply, you know, even one restaurant. Uh, let alone a whole bunch of restaurants with the amount of cultivated meat that would sell if they actually put it on the put it on the menu. So it really does feel a little bit like asking, you know, how much how much does an iPhone cost, um, you know, two years before there's a, uh, the the first iPhone goes on the market. It's it's tough to know, uh, but a lot of people are predicting that they will be um, cost competitive uh, with expensive beef. Um, in the next three or four years. And I think there's going to be a huge market for that. Um, and as the, as the capital expenditures and the R&D costs incorporate um, into the price of meat, uh, that price will plummet. But one of the things GFI is working very, very hard on um, in the United States, as well as in all of our five um, overseas affiliate offices, is getting governments on board with supporting these technologies. Governments supported the World Wide Web. They supported clean energy. They supported electric cars. They've supported kind of all of the technological innovations that have been good for society. And right now, governments are not meaningfully supporting. Um, there's a bit happening in Canada, a bit happening in Singapore. Uh, we've been successful with, with getting some money in, in Israel and India and the United States, but not nearly as much as there should be considering the promise of these technologies on issues like land use and climate change and food poisoning and food security um, and antibiotic resistance and just a range of issues that government where governments are funding science. Um, so governments should really be funding science in this area as well. And, uh, and when that happens, uh, prices will really plummet. What are some opportunities in um, the alternative meat and dairy space that entrepreneurs are not chasing at the moment? You know, are there any, any niche areas that you think there should be more innovation in? Well, there definitely should be more B2B innovation. Um, the Sentience Institute put out a fascinating report um, maybe six or eight months ago looking at what went wrong with biofuels um, and what and, and then, you know, what are the lessons um, from biofuels investments that we can uh, take to heart uh, with cultivated meat? It was just focused on cultivated meat, but I think it's true for plant based meat as well. Um, and one of the things that they pointed out was that um, some of the 
companies that people thought were going to be successful early that ended up failing uh, were basically doing um, business to consumer focus um, exclusively, and they were trying to do everything in-house. And I think with both plant-based meat and, and cultivated meat, if you look at all of the critical technology elements, all of the areas that, where innovation is necessary, all of the areas where scale-up is necessary, um, a lot of these companies are doing all of the work in-house, or maybe they're focusing on just sort of one or two things, and they're going to need support uh, for the things that they're not focused on. Um, so at least right now, I think there is tremendous opportunity for companies that, for example, just focus on scaffolding or just focus on cell immortalization or just focus on media or just focus on bioreactor scale-up that, that works for cultivated meat, that sort of thing. And then there would be you know, similar areas on the plant-based meat side uh, having to do with protein optimization uh, or manufacturing methods other than extrusion, scaling up the Coet cell concept out of Wageningen University. There are just many different things that people could be focusing on that I think would be significantly more efficient than trying to do kind of the entire production practice in-house. Um, we do at, at GFI, for, for people who are interested, who want to get um, involved in plant-based or cultivated meat, um, as entrepreneurs or as investors, we have just an overwhelming number of resources and would be delighted to chat with people. Um, one thing we put together is is a white space um, report that looks at um, areas that we think have been so far under-prioritized by entrepreneurs. And uh, we released the first version of it maybe 18 months ago. Our science and technology team um, is working on a, a new version of it that we should have ready in February that basically does a landscape analysis of the companies as they exist um, and says these are the companies that we think you know, don't exist and need to exist. We also have a startup guide that dives into this a little bit um, that won an award from, from Fast Company Magazine for its value to, to innovators and helping them not kind of reinvent wheels. Um, and one of the things it does is, is distills the various GFI resources, including the white space. Uh, concept idea. But we, I mean, we also think that there's room for multiple companies. Like, I mean, obviously a lot of the plant-based meat um, and cultivated meat co companies for a wide variety of reasons are not going to be successful. And in the same way that you can have, you know, you can have Tyson and Purdue, you can have a whole bunch of different chicken companies, a whole bunch of different beef companies, a whole bunch of different pork companies. Um, we think having multiple companies racing to solve the same problems um, is better than having fewer companies racing to solve those problems. What do you think will um, make the winners and the losers set apart? Um, you know, grit. Uh, grit, intelligence, humility. Um, uh, this is, I mean, this is the exact same answer that one would give um, in literally any industry, uh, with the exception of the fact that with, you know, with tech, uh, there can be a significant luck element that I think is less likely uh, to play much of a role um, in manufacturing. So um, a lot of companies are started by founders who have, you know, they are smart. They do have a lot of grit. They have a lot of passion. They work like mad. Uh, but if you don't have the humility to recognize that uh, if you've never done food manufacturing, you better 
um, have very early hires uh, be people who have done food manufacturing and your um, hiring process needs to be uh, rigorous. So I guess that, you know, you could luck out and actually get people who are uh, very, very good uh, despite not having a, a rigorous hiring process. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot that has to happen to make stuff uh, that isn't, uh, isn't required uh, in the same way if what you're doing is, you know, something that's uh, purely focused on coding. Um, yeah. So there are just a lot of different ways that, that people can fail uh, when you're manufacturing products um, that are less likely to be bugs in the ointment uh, with a lot of other ways that, that people are um, entrepreneurs and scientific visionaries. So, but yeah, I think lack of humility is probably a big one. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, no, just drawing on from that, um, thinking about the, the plant-based race, perhaps you could call it. Um, it seems to me that some of the biggest uh, issues there for potentially setting the winners and losers apart is going to be the sourcing. So how, you know, how, how fast they can scale up the, um, the feedstock as such for, for their products. Um, you know, we've seen Impossible and Beyond both have some shortages issues. Mm -hmm. um, but I also wonder if it's going to be, you know, what is that input? What is that feedstock? Um, might there be some novel ingredients that have improved nutritional profiles over others, perhaps? I know that consumers are starting to question sometimes the, um, the nutritional benefits of these products, thinking about the processing that goes into them, etc. So what do you think about that sourcing challenge? Um, and what do you think might be the next wave there? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and that, that is another, um, I think, white space opportunity. There are, especially on the, uh, especially on the cell base side, but probably on both sides, um, there is a lot of room um, for startups to outsource that, uh, those questions, and, and to get people who are actually experts um, in sourcing um, and experts in media and experts in feedstocks and experts in plant biology um, looking at those questions in a really concerted way. And if each individual new company um, is doing that for themselves, that's probably a recipe for less success um, than if there are, you know, if there, there is a company that that is what they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, there are um, there are basically limitless ways uh, for companies to fail, um, and uh, you add all of the intricacies um, of making meat from plants or growing meat directly from cells, and you end up with uh, with even a lot more. Um, absolutely. Okay. Well, we're going to finish up soon. I always ask people on the Future Food Podcast what they had for breakfast. So, what did you have? Um, so. I, you know, there's a, there's a, a Tim Ferriss question uh, that he sometimes asks. He usually asks me if it costs less than five dollars, but um, I, I would say that that the the item in our house um, that my wife and I uh, would be lost without is our Vitamix. Um, we do not have stock in Vitamix. I don't even know if it's a publicly publicly traded company, but um, we do start every day um, with a a fruit smoothie. Uh, from our Vitamix uh, and coffee, which is what, uh, what we also started today with. And how would you say your food preferences have changed in the last few years? And since you've had GFI, you know, are you are you continuously trying out um, all the new products that are coming to the market? Uh, I was continuously trying out all of the new products as they came to market even before GFI. 
Um, I joked at the I joked at the Good Food Conference um, as I was uh, thinking about you know Morningstar and Tofurky and Beyond Meat and Impossible and like just all of these people uh, giving their samples as well as the the startup companies like Hooray Foods um, giving samples and Rebellious and um, that uh, basically I just really really um, love plant-based meat and dairy. Um, and I'm um, super enthusiastic about uh, the plant-based eggs from uh, Follow Your Heart and, and Just, and now a new company that's up and coming called Zero Egg. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a degree to which maybe I started GFI just because I love these products so much and want to eat them all the time. But um, <laughs> I was eating them all the time before, and, and I'm continuing to eat them all the time now. And, and now I have actually uh, – it's funny, you know, I'll take a photo of, uh, of whatever it is that my wife and I are having for dinner or whatever, and I'll say, this is work study, you know, this is for my job. And, uh, and similarly, when I, was, uh, when I was in Brazil, we did this uh, just wonderful um, afternoon trying all of the various plant-based products um, and just really so impressed by JDS's burger. I mean, JDS is the largest meat company. Um, in the world, um, and they're jumping in as the as the woman from JBS said at our our conference. They want to cannonball into the pool uh, of plant based meat, and they really did a nice job with it. And then uh, the Burger King, they call it the Rebel Whopper uh, in Brazil, which is a, a plant based burger uh, by um, the second largest meat company in Brazil. And, and eating all of those products was just uh, it was both um, work uh, and joy. And I I just yeah, I'm, I'm super enthusiastic um, about the plant-based meats. I'm super enthusiastic about the cultivated meats. And that was true before I started GFI, and it, it remains uh, as true as it was then. Fantastic. And just to finish off, if you had a moonshot idea that could improve the food system, and it could be unrealistic or it could be realistic, what would it be? Um, I think it is very realistic uh, that the governments of the world put – billions of dollars each into solving the problems of industrial animal agriculture uh, by accelerating the plant-based and cultivated meat technologies. Governments, I mean, the U.S. government put, puts billions of dollars a year into ag research. China puts even more money into ag research, um, billions of dollars going into clean energy. Um, we are literally not going to keep, like, we will not meet the Paris climate obligation of keeping climate change under two degrees Celsius by 2050, um, unless meat consumption goes down. Um, meat consumption is not going to down. There is no scenario in which that happens. So we need to make meat in a way that doesn't have the same climate impact. And, and governments need to get behind to this, and they need to get behind to this by uh, funding projects in, in plant-based and cultivated meat. And um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's simultaneously a moonshot, but also realistic. They should be doing it. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.